the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. It's a delight to have Ben Steele in the house. Ben Steele is based in New York, where he serves as a senior fellow and as director of international economics for the Council on Foreign Relations. And as you'll see in the show notes, his academic and research background is literally world class. Ben Steele is the author of a series of highly respected and important to note, highly readable books relating to the founding of the American-led world order following the Second World War. His latest book is The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. Ben Steele, welcome to the Surf to Lead podcast. Thanks for, for having me, Jim. Great to be here. Ben Steele is 2024, and your book is about an American politician who ran unsuccessfully on a third-party ticket all the way back to 1948, and he's named Wallace, but not George Wallace. So for all of us who maybe don't pay quite as much attention to world events as you do, who was Henry Wallace and what prompted you to write this important book and why does it matter now? So Henry Wallace was uh, FDR's first agriculture secretary. That's uh, over the course of his first two terms from 1933 to 1940. Um, in 1940, quite controversially, FDR tapped him as his running mate. Um, and he became uh, vice president. Um, Wallace was always a controversial figure within the U.S. political establishment because his family were Republicans from uh, Iowa. He didn't actually switch parties to the Democratic Party until 1936. Um, within the Democratic Party, he was seen as being too left-wing and too radical by um, uh, those on the right, particularly Southern conservatives. And liberals didn't quite trust him because of his Republican background. Um, but um, he was FDR's vice president from 1941 to 1944. Um, he is best known today, however, for the way in which he lost his place on the ticket in the um, uh, 1944 Democratic Convention. The um, Democratic National Committee leaders were extremely concerned with FDR's deteriorating physical condition, and they lobbied him to choose another vice president. Um, FDR had great difficulty looking someone in the face and saying, I'm sorry, buddy, you're gone, you're being replaced. Um, so he left that job to surrogates, and they could not convince Wallace to drop out. Um, FDR himself said, you know, I would love to run with you again, but you're, you're going to be beaten out in Chicago. But Wallace still ran, and there was a wild open convention for vice president in which Harry Truman, the junior senator from Missouri, uh, won out on the second ballot. And, of course, Truman became president when FDR died um, the following uh, April. Um, and since Truman and, F and uh, Wallace had very, very different political views, particularly as regards relations with the Soviet Union, 
Um, there's been a lot of speculation about what the world would be like today had Henry Wallace become president instead of Harry Truman. Um, the controversial documentary filmmaker Oliver Stone made a documentary series in 2012 called The Untold History of the United States, in which he argued that if Wallace had kept his rightful place on the ticket in 1944, of course, he would have become president and there would have been no Cold War. Um, so that's an underlying theme of my, my book, this counterfactual question. What would the world have been if Henry Wallace had become president? Now, I saw that documentary along with a, mm -hmm. a lot of people online. It was delightful, really fun to watch. I'll say I brought a little bit of a bias to it because I had done some work in the successor DA in New Orleans to Jim Garrison, and part of my job was to go through files. So I was very skeptical of Stone's views on the Kennedy assassination. But I must say, his views on the Cold War, they're pretty attractive. Uh, what did he get wrong, and what what is this about, this counterfactual you've identified? Well, uh, let's, let's start with what um, uh, I think he, he got right, which is that people matter very, very much in, in history. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that it would be a very different world we are living in today had Henry Wallace become president. Um, I don't agree with him that there would have been no Cold War. Um, even Henry Wallace himself disagreed with Oliver Stone. Uh, in his retirement, um, he gave oral history interviews in, in which um, he explained how his own views about the Soviet Union evolved um, in the uh, years after um, he was trounced in the 1948 um, presidential uh, election. He also said that um, uh, it would have been extremely unlikely that he would have been elected in his own right um, in 1948, had he become president on FDR's death in 1945. Um, we can, however, say with great confidence that there would have been no Truman Doctrine, there would have been no policy of containment, there would have been no Marshall Plan, there would have been no NATO, there would have been no West Germany or European Union. Um, had Henry Wallace become president, he um, did not support any of those um, uh, initiatives. Uh, and I would argue, given what we know from the Soviet archives today, um, Stalin was not interested in peace with the United States for peace's sake. Um, he was interested in the um, geopolitical opportunities that a passive United States um, would have uh, provided him. Um, and uh, I argue in the book that had Wallace um, become president in 45, the Soviets almost certainly would have ex expanded um, their um, reach in Asia and Europe, most likely into Hokkaido, the entire Korean peninsula, into um, uh, Turkey, into northern Iran, Greece, and almost certainly the, the whole of Germany. So I do believe that we would have entered into the Cold War, but it would have just been somewhat delayed. That is, in 1948, when Wallace almost certainly would have been trounced in an election, and that we would have been fighting at an enormous disadvantage at that point. One of the many amazing things about your book, and I think readers will agree with all the praising 
reviewers about how accessible it is and brings it to life. You have all these tremendous pictures and graphs and pen portraits. It's almost like a, a one-part documentary, one part you hold in your hand. And one of the extraordinary things was your use of the archives you mentioned. Mm-hmm. To see the extent to which Stalin had penetrated the top levels of U.S. government Quite remarkable, is extraordinary. It? Yeah. It's almost beyond belief. Tell us about that and how you put that in perspective. Well, this this started um, uh, in the early 1930s. A number of the top people working under um, uh, Wallace at the Agriculture Department went on to be prominent uh, figures within the CPUSA, the American Communist Party, uh, and or were Soviet agents, people like um, Alger Hiss, uh, John Apt, uh, Lee Pressman. Um, now, it, I should emphasize that it was hardly Wallace's fault that they were in the agriculture de- de- department. He had not um, promoted them himself, but he never acted on suspicions that I know he had um, reading his uh, diary about people like Alger Hiss. Uh, having said that, within the Commerce Department, now he became Commerce Secretary after losing his place on the ticket in 44. So in, in spring of 45, FDR, right before FDR dies, he makes him uh, Commerce Secretary. He stays in that post for a year and a half under Truman until Truman fires him in um, uh, September of 1946. Now, um, many of the top people in the Commerce um, Department uh, under Wallace had been promoted um, by Wallace, and they were indeed major Soviet assets, or in one case, um, the case of his primary economic advisor, Harry Magdoff, an active Soviet agent who even passed on Wallace's um, very confidential cabinet papers on atomic issues from September 1945 to Moscow. Um, uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI were very much on top of these people. I mean, one um, very valuable resource I had in writing the book um, was the FBI archives um, themselves. All these people had their phones tapped. So you could hear what they were saying as Wallace was making his decisions almost in real time. It's quite remarkable. Um, But interestingly, none of these um, people were ever prosecuted. Uh, I think there are a few reasons for that. Um, First, the um, uh, phone taps were inadmissible evidence in court. Um, Second, the accounts of confessed spies like Whitaker Chambers and Elizabeth Bentley would have been considered uh, hearsay. And finally, Hoover really wasn't interested in them. He was interested in nailing Henry Wallace. Now, Henry Wallace was not a Soviet agent, um, but he was very much an important um, uh, asset for the Soviets. And as you know from reading the book, um, he quite actively colluded with Stalin during the 1948 uh, election campaign to undermine the Truman administration's foreign policy. Now, you, in addition to being a historian and an expert on international economics and finance, you received a doctorate, I believe, at Oxford in England. You must have thought about this situation of these highly placed, let's say, elite Americans who had lost faith in our country 
And there were some similar things that happened in Britain in the interwar period. Are there any thoughts on that that come to your mind from your personal experience? Well, you know, I should emphasize that in, in many cases, these people who were quite important Soviet assets, I'm thinking in particular of one who I wrote quite a bit about, um, Harry Dexter White at Treasury, who was um, very important in putting together the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944 that produced the IMF and the, the, the World Bank. Um, White would have become Treasury Secretary um, in uh, a, a Wallace administration. Lawrence Duggan from uh, the State Department, also a Soviet asset, would have become Secretary of State. These people would not have considered themselves to be in any way disloyal to the United States. Um, I can particularly speak to the case of Harry Dexter White. He saw himself as pursuing uh, what he considered to be enlightened American national interest uh, against those who he felt were undermining um, U- U.S. Um, priorities. And those would be, to his mind, um, isolationists in Congress, um, and um, members of what he considered to be the reactionary Catholic hierarchy. Um, so, you know, these were people who would certainly considered themselves to be uh, American patriots, but had a very different view of how the um, country should um, uh, evolve, particularly um, under its economic management and what sort of relations it should pursue with the Soviet Union in the post-war era. Let's go back to 1940 for a moment, because a lot of people today, understandably, can forget that a vice president is there entirely at the sufferance of the president, in short. And Franklin Roosevelt decided after two terms with a lot of successful use of John Nance Garner of Ooh. Texas, who you referred to as, I believe, a hickory conservative, a term <laughs> yes. I hadn't heard before. Maybe you can tell us about that, too. But Roosevelt picks out of this entire country a non-elective politician, Wallace. Now, what yeah. was his thinking? How in the world did he get there? Well, that, that, that's a great question. Pe- people often lose track of the fact that, that Wallace, though he was in government for many years, from 1933 to 1946, was never elected to anything in his own right. And he was not a natural politician by any stretch of the um, uh, imagination. I should emphasize that in 1940, he was not FDR's first choice or even his second choice. Um, so it's in, it's uh, it, despite the fact that there's so much great archival material on what FDR said to various people, it's almost impossible to know what he actually thought at any given time because he was such a master of deception. Uh, but there are a few things that we absolutely know. That FDR was um, determined um, to have uh, what he considered to be an internationalist in the position. He was preparing the country for war. Um, and so in that regard, um, his first choice was the Secretary of State, Cordell Hull. Um, Hull was not interested in the post at all. Um, FDR tried desperately to convince him to take it. Um, Hull thought, you know, this is a job with only two responsibilities, breaking tie votes in the Senate and sitting on presidential death watch, 
which didn't <laughs> sound ter- terribly attractive to him at the time. Um, FDR tried to convince him to take the post by threatening to put Wallace <laughs> in the post. If uh, Hall said no, Hall was no great fan of uh, uh, Wallace's views on, on foreign policy. Uh, FDR's uh, second choice was uh, another Southerner, uh, Jimmy Burns from mm-hmm. uh, South Carolina. But Burns had some religious issues that we would consider other, utterly esoteric today, which led some people within the um, uh, DNC to believe that he would lose FDR votes. Um, so what did Wallace have going for him? Well, Wallace was certainly uh, internationalist-minded. Um, he was seen as being the, the most forceful face for the New Deal at a time when the president was focused on uh, foreign affairs. And interestingly, um, FDR thought that Wallace would help him considerably in the farm belt. Wallace, of course, came from um, uh, Iowa. He was an agricultural expert. But that didn't actually pan out in the end. Um, FDR's opponent, Republican opponent in the election, Wendell Wilkie, won only 10 states, but seven of them were from the Midwest, including Iowa. So by the time we get to 1940, um, Wallace is already being seen as um, uh, somewhat of a foreigner in the Midwest. He's no longer seen as being one of them. You know, one of the many interesting things about your book, The World That Wasn't, is you do such a comprehensive look at this consequential life, and often you leave, and I say this with praise, like little sparks around that (laughs) you you can't explore everything because the book would never end. But it makes you think, and I want to mention one and see if you think my reaction uh, is purely eccentric or if there's anything interesting in it. Uh, I couldn't help but think about, as you refer to Wallace being from Iowa, and his mutual antipathy that you refer to with Herbert Hoover. Now, Hoover Hoover was also, of course, from Iowa. He also made his extraordinary uh, financial success from the land. In one case, it was a cultivator. In one case, an extractor. Uh, They both were people who were viewed by a number of politicians, including Franklin Roosevelt initially, as very promising to serve in elective politics. They both fell short of expectation in actual high-level politics. They both had a very, very high personal character, likely greater with all due respect to Franklin Roosevelt, but neither, I would argue, could have been anywhere near the leader that Franklin Roosevelt was. How do you respond to that? Well, in the case of um, uh, Hoover, Wallace's antipathy, and it was antipathy, was very personal. So Wallace's father, who was also a Henry Wallace, he was known as Harry um, to um, eliminate the confusion that uh, inevitably resulted from the fact that all firstborn um, males in the Wallace family were Henry's. Hmm. Um, So uh, Wallace's father, Harry Wallace, as he was called, um, was agriculture secretary under uh, Harding and uh, Coolidge. And he warred almost continuously um, uh, with uh, Hoover, who was um, the powerful commerce secretary um, uh, at the time. 
though he did come from Iowa, Hoover was seen as a um, supporter of uh, American industrial interests um, and uh, backed things like manufacturing tariffs that um, uh, agricultural supporters were very much uh, uh, against. Um, uh, so uh, Wallace's father uh, died, um, in, I believe it was 1924, um, pre- really very prematurely. And um, uh, Henry always blamed Hoover for his father's death. And he said after his father died that I hope I will never hate anyone as viscerally as I hated Herbert Hoover. Of course, you've read the book, so you know that um, he, he didn't have much more affection for Harry Truman <laughs> when we fast forward some some years. So per, perhaps uh, in that regard, his wish was not fulfilled. One of the many echoes in your book that readers, I think, will be intrigued by, and it certainly has me thinking, is 1944, an older president visibly declining Convention in Chicago, a big effort to get a new vice president put on the ticket. Now in 2024, we have an older president who very much admires Franklin Roosevelt and who has big decisions to make about his vice president. How do you think about that? How should we all think about that? Well, I I actually wrote um, uh, a piece for uh, Time very recently arguing that this was the most consequential vice presidential choice um, since uh, 1944, um, 80 years ago, um, when uh, FDR allowed uh, Wallace to be manipulated off the ticket and Harry Truman elevated to the role. Um, I would argue that um, uh, Kamala Harris is not ready for prime time. And given that actuarially, there's a one-third chance that um, Joe Biden would not uh, live to finish a um, uh, second term. I really do believe it's incumbent on him to um, pick a more credible, shall we say, president-in-waiting. It was very interesting uh, today. We're recording on February 16th of 2024, and by coincidence today with the very sad news of the death of Alexei Navalny in prison, in Putin's Russia, the White House reaction came from the vice president. So at the moment, people trying to read the runes, so to speak, are expressing a sense that maybe the president is trying to push the vice president further into acceptance by the public as a national and international leader. I, I think he really needs to do that if he's determined to keep Harris on the, the ticket, because right now opinion, opinion polls indicate um, that the American public um, is not convinced um, that she's uh, a, a compelling president um, in waiting. Uh, so Joe Biden, to the extent that he disagrees, uh, really does have to elevate her presence during the campaign, and particularly in the area of uh, foreign affairs, uh, given how many serious conflicts we have going on in the world. Um, uh, he has to, to show uh, America that if he's reelected, that there's someone right behind him who could step into the shoes if he weren't there to fill them. Now, Ben Steele, as an admiring reader of this book, I look at the other books you've written, 
And unless I'm misunderstanding it, it looks like you have a real fascination with the creation of what we might call the American-based world order after the Second World War. Is that correct? And if so, why is that something that you have given such significance and dedicated your career in part to? Well, you, you know, my my interests have um, uh, evolved quite a bit um, over the last dozen years or so. I started writing the Bretton Woods um, book uh, back in 2009 as the financial crisis was spreading globally and, and you had world leaders like um, French President Nicolas Sarkozy, um, uh, Tony Blair, etc., calling for, quote-unquote, a new Bretton Woods. Um, and I had been struck by the fact that have, there had been so little actually written about the episode, how the Bretton Woods uh, Agreement, which was enormously consequential, um, uh, was produced. Um, but I had started that project really um, coming at it as, as purely an economist, you know, um, uh, applying that um, uh, lens of uh, expertise. Uh, but uh, over the course of my research, I became utterly fascinated with the early Cold War aspect of the story, and particularly the fact that uh, Harry Dexter White, the Treasury re official who was primarily responsible um, for the conference and its outcome, was a major Soviet um, asset. Uh, when I wrote that book, I filed my first uh, freedom of information request with the FBI um, for uh, documents on um, uh, Harry Dexter White and received back um, disks with 13,000 pages. Uh, among them, I found eight, 18 um, decrypted Soviet intelligence cables mentioning White and his activities on uh, the behalf of the Soviet um, Union. Um, which really did confirm uh, his important um, uh, position within um, Soviet um, foreign affairs. Um, uh, so at that point, I was quite uh, addicted to Cold War studies. Uh, the Marshall Plan was a, a natural sequel to the Bretton Woods book in that it was um, it marked a transition from the one-world view of the FDR administration, which had envisioned the U.S. and the Soviet Union cooperating in the post-war era, to a two-world uh, view under um, uh, President Truman. And over the course of that research, I did find some documents in the Russian archives that um, indicated that Wallace, who staunchly opposed the Marshall Plan, um, might really have played a, a very interesting role in um, how the Soviet Union thought of its ability to manipulate American um, politics. While I was writing that book, I had several discussions with Cold War um, historian John Lewis Gaddis at Yale, and he was the one who urged me to consider writing uh, a biography of um, Wallace. So it's been quite an evolution in my, my own career. Um, but I'm so happy that I set out on this road because, as, as you see, the Wallace story is a, a truly fascinating one. And I was very fortunate that there was excellent material 
in the Russian archives that was available at least until February 2022 um, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, at which point those archives became effectively inaccessible to Western researchers. So here we are basically 80 years later, and it appears there's great stress on the post-war American world order. Yes. How do you think about this? Is the role that the United States ought to play to try to preserve this order, to reform it, or to just keep operating as is? That's a great question. Um, uh, I've been thinking about what kind of book could come next, and um, I've thought quite a bit about writing more about the development of um, so-called one-world thinking in the 1940s. Um, at the, and the failure of that vision um, at that time because of the deteriorating um, relations between the United States and the Soviet Union. Some of that thinking, as you know, was really revived uh, at the end of the Cold War with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, um, the so-called Fukuyama end of history thesis, the feeling that um, uh, American democratic capitalism no longer had any ideological um, challengers, that um, institutions that um, we had um, developed, in particular the, uh, the IMF, the World Bank, the um, World Trade Organization, um, and which we effectively dominated could be the basis of a new one world order. And that, as you know, hasn't panned out as we expected. Um, uh, globalization has gotten somewhat of a bad name uh, among significant elements of um, the U.S. Um, population. And of course, uh, countries like China and Russia today are pushing back heavily against um, that um, uh, American vision. Um, and so, you know, the same sort of challenges that um, uh, the United States was facing in the 1940s at the end of the war are the sort of challenges that we're facing today. Um, is it possible to maintain uh, a quote-unquote liberal international order or an American um, uh, uh, order? Um, and if not, what sort of world should we be trying to construct? Should it be, for, for example, a version of the two-world order that Harry Truman presided um, uh, over, um, w perhaps based on um, countries um, who are dedicated to um, democratic values and market-based um, economics uh, coming within the leadership of the United States and other countries perhaps falling in under Chinese leaderships or many countries um, remaining non-aligned. So there are many directions in which the world could go. As you look back from your historian's perch, how do you, how possible is it? How do you think about today? Could the United States, if its so-called elites, and let's assume for the moment those elites could earn more respect, more as like in prior times, which I know is a big if, but would it be possible for a political economy in the position ours is in to be reformed? And could we produce the leadership to make our system work to get there? 
Well, this this is a great question, um, and of course, for um, many generations, we had um, Republicans and Democrats um, at the top of our political establishment who were dedicated um, internationalists, um, and that's changed um, with the Trump uh, presidency from 2016 to 2020. And it um, uh, appears that Trump still has a, a very tight grip on that party. Um, and the fact that um, Nikki Haley, um, who is much more of an establishment figure, um, has so far uh, been unable to get uh, much traction in the Republican primaries, really does seem to um, indicate that we have in many ways gone back to the 1930s and the debate between the internationalists and the isolationists. Um, and I would say that, you know, Trump may not be a student of history, but he's been able to tap into a sort of primeval uh, consciousness in American society um, that really did embrace um, uh, what we call now um, isolationism. That, that is that the, uh, the United States should not be intimately involved in world affairs. It should, to the best of its uh, ability, um, concentrate um, on protecting the, the um, uh, home front um, and pursuing a so-called America first vision. And to be sure, America First, for example, as you would know better than anybody, uh, before it became controversial, right before World War II with the America First Committee and Charles Lindbergh and so on, both Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson used that term. Wilson even yes. campaigned on it in 1916. And a lot of this, these arguments one could trace to Washington's farewell or John Quincy Adams or completely, you know, this is uh, completely agree with that. In fact, I, I led off my book on the Marshall Plan um, with a, a quote from George Washington's farewell address because mm -hmm. I wanted to emphasize the, the extent to which the Marshall Plan was a deviation from um, uh, um, Washington's admonishments. Well, let's talk a minute about another aspect of your book, if we might, pulling back the aperture or opening the aperture further. You know, you mentioned how your book really is an eye-opener about how individuals can make a difference in history. And contingency, I mean, my God, the contingency, you start the book with the convention and Claude Pepper, and they adjourned it right before they might have nominated Wallace and just taken control. Uh, then, of course, you had the fact that Churchill is removed from office, Roosevelt dies, Stalin is the sole remaining member with continuity in the big three, on and on. So with this thought of contingency, how does a great power like the United States, how do we think about leadership amid so much contingency? This is a great uh, question. Um, of course, presidents in the United States are not all powerful. They can't do uh, anything they want. And there are plenty of things that Wallace wanted to do that he would never have been able to do as president. For example, as you know, the Marshall Plan was a remarkable legislative uh, accomplishment. Here was an enormous foreign aid package being 
uh, proposed by a Democratic administration, and it's ultimately ratified by a Republican Congress. Um, now, uh, imagine a President Wallace going before Congress, um, opposing the Marshall Plan, um, and wanting a much bigger plan, um, $50 billion uh, at the time, which is about $650 billion today, that would be administered entirely independently by the new United Nations. That is, the United States would be funding it, uh, but it would be run by, a, by a, a new international body, the United Nations, and most of that money, the equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars today, would have gone to the Soviet Union. Um, now, obviously, that had no chance of getting through Congress. So, you know, we do have checks and balances in our system, um, and they do function more or less uh, effectively from time to time. Um, but in terms of the initiatives that Wallace would not have pursued, for example, um, sending, Truman sent a military flotilla um, uh, to the Mediterranean in 1946 to warn um, Stalin to get out of um, uh, uh, Iran and uh, Turkey. Um, it, if Wallace had not undertaken these sorts of initiatives, um, irrespective of, of what Congress thought, um, uh, Stalin would have expanded his geopolitical reach quite extensively. So the ex executive in the United States has always been um, extremely powerful. And it's, in my view, only become more powerful over the decades since the Second World War. A couple of closing questions. What did you learn from writing this book that really surprised you? How has Ben Steele's view of the world been altered, if at all, from this experience or this deep dive into all these aspects of American history? Well, first, let's take it down to the, the human level. Isn't Henry Wallace a fascinating yes. being? Yes. He truly is. And, you know, I, I think too many of us, when we approach biographies, uh, uh, approach it from the perspective of asking, well, is this person supposed to be a god or a devil? Um, you know, how are, how are we supposed to evaluate him? And uh, Wallace is a very complex figure. I would argue that if he had stuck to his roots, um, as an agricultural scientist, where he made enormous contributions, um, uh, he would be world renowned today. Um, as you know, he um, uh, revolutionized the way a corn is, is, is grown. He genetically engineered it, he hybridized it, and produced um, uh, strains of corn that were much more uh, abundant and resistant to d disease. Um, he increased agricultural output in Mexico um, enormously based on a Rockefeller Foundation initiative that um, um, he pursued. Um, even in his retirement, he was doing remarkable experiments with chickens. He developed a breed of chicken that eats less and lays more eggs. <laughs> so just a remarkable scientific figure. But as you also know, um, uh, he was, in, in some senses, a really wacky spiritualist um, who um, j basically joined a cult movement in the early 1930s and almost caused a diplomatic crisis 
um, in Central Asia during FDR's um, first administration. There, you know, these things, two things don't usually go together. Mm. Uh, a deep love of scientific empiricism on the one hand and an absolute fascination with mysticism and theosophy and spiritualism uh, on the other. So, I, you know, I was just um, struck by what a fascinating human being um, uh, Henry Wallace uh, was. Um, you know, he's really, in my view, a very compelling figure for uh, biography in the way that, say, George Marshall, um, who is clearly a, a, a great man, one of the, the greatest American po- political and military uh, figures in our country's history, is, is not. Uh, I would not want to write a biography of um, uh, George Marshall because I consider that sort of perfection to be a little <laughs> dull, frankly. Um, but, at, you know, at a much uh, broader level, I think it, the book really does speak to this question of whether we are all just um, uh, flotsam on a sea of um, uh, historical forces um, or whether individuals really do matter. You, you referred to contingency. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm absolutely convinced, having written this, this book, that, um, you know, his, history um, pivots on certain um, remarkably um, small events um, uh, in rather remarkable ways. And as, as I said at the outset of our discussion, we'd be living in a very different world today had that convention produced uh, a different outcome. And as you know, from the very start of the book, it was, it was a very closely run thing. And let's close where we began, Ben Steele. Have you heard from Oliver Stone? Are you going to reach out to him? Are you open to debate him? <laughs> I, I, have, I have not heard from uh, Oliver Stone. I would presume he would uh, not be interested in debate, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Who knows? I think you have a big audience. I hope you think about that debate. <laughs> well, Ben Steele, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your very important uh, and very readable new book, The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the Fate of the American Century. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us and for making this podcast possible. Please see our show notes for links to Ben Steele's book, as well as his Time Magazine article and his CFR office. As we wrap up, please help us continue to reach a growing audience by sharing the podcast with others. And we will look forward to seeing you next time. Take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.